following audio is from Covenant Life Fellowship. And for, for more information about our church and to stay up to date on all sermons, events, and news, please visit our website at www.clfroseburg.com. Our Bibles, we're going to go to the book of 1 Corinthians chapter 15 together. 1 Corinthians 15 is where we're going to be this morning. <clears throat> and, you know, if you're like me over the last 18 months, I am sure that you at some point have wondered what in the world is going on. Uh, why are things so confusing? I mean, good grief, you could read one scientific report from a doctor with like 80 different things behind their name and another one from another doctor, same thing, and they both completely contradict one another. It just seems so confusing. I mean, you may wonder as well, where are, where are these things going? <clears throat> things seem chaotic. They feel divided. We feel divided like never before. There doesn't seem to be many answers for any of it. And if you're a Christian, I'm sure that on more than one occasion, you found yourself fighting discouragement, uh, probably fighting fear, fighting anxiety, fighting anger, and maybe even fighting depression because of what you've experienced or what you have heard. And you can imagine as a pastor in this culture, and in particularly our neck of the woods, the amount of things that I get asked, right? So I, I get asked from people from who are very conspiratorial that there is an evil underlying world in everything and we cannot see it. It's happening and it's moving things to a certain direction to those on another side that believe what we've been told and they're very concerned and worried about the virus. What's intriguing in both perspectives, from whatever place you come from, I've had to give them the same counsel over and over again. Where is your hope lying? Where's your hope? What gives you hope in this world? But let's take it a little deeper, though. If you've lived in this world for very long, you have gone through a serious tragedy of some kind. You've, you've lost a loved one that you care for deeply, and you don't understand it. You've lost a job that came out of nowhere with no job in sight. You've had a bad health diagnosis, or you've had a loved one have one. And you've had this question probably come to mind. Where, where is God in the middle of all of this? And what are his plans in it? The challenge is we have to look at ourselves very honestly and begin to ask a question. Where does our hope lie? It's funny in America, you know, if something good happens, God was involved. If something bad happens, he wasn't involved. Which doesn't match with biblical teaching. You could have something good happen to you and Satan be involved. Your sin was involved. You could have something bad happen to you for the purpose of getting you somewhere and God was involved. The question is, where does your hope lie? That's what we're going to look at this morning. We're, we're going to look this morning at potentially one of the top three most hope-filled scriptures in all of scripture. And here's what I hope we'll see. If you're new with us, you should have got a like an insert or a, a announcement thing, and on the back of it's got an outline. Um, I think it's what do you call it? Handout. I don't know what we call those things. Um, I'm, I just I just preach here, you know. Um, so, and there's a big idea on the top of the outline, and it, and here's the big idea that we want to learn from this text. 
Jesus' victory over death and his future victory over all things frees us to live by faith and with courage. I want to say it again. Jesus' victory over death and his future victory over the grave frees us to live by faith and with courage. So with that in mind, let's stand together. We're going to read 1 Corinthians 15, 20 through 34. It's the biggest section that we're going to cover in 1 Corinthians 15. It'll take us a bit to read it. So um, you know, if you can't stand that long, that's fine. You can feel free to take a seat. 1 Corinthians 15, verse 20. We stand because this is God's word. It is inspired. It is true. And we believe it. And we want to be people who submit our hearts to it. This is the reading of God's word. 1 Corinthians 15. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order. Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end when he delivers the kingdom to God, the Father, after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he, that he is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. Otherwise, what do people mean by being baptized on behalf of the dead? If the dead are not raised at all, why are people baptized on their behalf? Why are we in danger every hour? I protest, brothers, by my pride in you, which I have in Christ Jesus our Lord. I die every day. What do I gain if, humanly speaking, I fought with beasts at Ephesus? If the dead are not raised, let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Do not be deceived. Bad company ruins good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor as is right, and do not go on sinning. For some have no knowledge of God. I say this to your shame. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for giving us the truth. Thank you that you have given us hope. And Lord, thank you for your promise. I pray this morning, Father, that you would fill us with hope. Only you can open our eyes to the wonder of your victory and the hope that you want to give us. And I pray you'd change us. Father, you know my weaknesses today. You know know what I need. I pray you'd help me and empower the preaching of your word for the glory of Christ and the good of your people. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thank you. you may be seated. <clears throat> now again, after reading this text, I hope you'll see the big idea. Jesus' victory over death and his future victory over all things frees us to live by faith and with courage. So let's start with that first point there in your outline, which is the victory of Christ's resurrection. We're going to see this in verses 20 through 23. Now, if you were with us last week, you'll remember that in verses 12 through 19, we covered a major concern of the Apostle Paul. It was that the Corinthian Christians, who said they believed that Jesus 
died in their place and rose again from the dead, they did not believe any longer in the resurrection of the dead. It's a major issue, major concern. And Paul, in verses 12 through 19, imagines the unimaginable. Let's just imagine that the resurrection doesn't happen. Let's imagine that there is no resurrection of the dead. What would be the consequences of that? And of the major consequence that Paul brings out is basically this, and you can find it in verse 13 and verse 16, that if the dead are not raised, then Jesus has not been raised. And as we examined this last week, we recognize that as Christians, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, we've literally lost everything in our faith. We'd still be in our sins, still be unforgiven. We would not be reconciled to God, and we would have no hope of eternal life. It'd be worse than tragic because we'd lose everything that we've staked our lives in. But notice how Paul begins verse 20. But, in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. But, in fact, Jesus has been raised from the dead. But, in fact, the tomb is indeed empty. But, in fact, he has been raised as the guarantee for our salvation. But in fact, he has been raised so that God would approve of him and applaud all that he has done in his life and his death. The fact that Jesus has been raised from the dead changes everything for us as Christians and really changes the way that we live in this world. And in verses 20 through 23, Paul shows us why this is true. Notice in verse 20 that he continued and he said that Jesus is the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, first fruits is not a term that you and I are normally, we don't ever talk, walk, talk around talk about, hey, here's my first fruits. We don't ever do that. The term first fruits is an agricultural term that these people would understood, would understand very clearly. And it basically means this the first fruits are the first installment of the harvest that pledges more of the same kind to come. So when you're reading that Jesus is the first fruits of those raised from the dead, what you're reading is this. Jesus' resurrection is the guarantee of more resurrections to come just like his. Now what were his? What was his resurrection? It was bodily. It was physically. Raised from the dead. Meaning that people, humans, will be physically raised from the dead who have put their hope in Christ because Christ has been raised from the dead. He's the first fruits. So you can see the problem. If he's still in the grave, there's no guarantee of this future resurrection. But since he's not in the grave, he's the first fruits, the guarantee that there's more to come. But then Paul continues in verses 21 through 23 where he tells us that in Adam... We all die, but in Christ, we shall be made alive. Now, what Paul is referencing here is the fact that Adam was our first representative before God, first human. He sinned miserably, right? The moment he was offered the fruit by his wife, he took it and he ate it. People ask me all the time, what would happen if Adam hadn't eaten the fruit? My response is, it would have gotten to Dave York and I would have ruined it for all of us, Right? you don't know yourself very well, you need to understand, right? The next person in line would have done something stupid. We would all would. Adam is our first representative. And when Adam ate the fruit, it was as if we ate. We read this in Romans chapter five, when 
It's very clear that when Adam sinned, he brought death with his sin because we all sinned. In Adam, we sinned. That's our first representative. And with that sin brought death. For Christ Jesus came to save us from this death. He came to live perfectly in our place. He came to die the death that we deserved in our place. So if he stayed dead, we have no hope to be made alive, and we have no hope of eternal life. But that's not what 1 Corinthians 15.22 says, is it? It says, in Christ, all shall be made alive. All who put their faith in Jesus, in his life, his death, and his resurrection shall be made alive. Now, what's intriguing is we're even told in the text when it happens. Verse 23 tells us it happens at his coming. Notice the order. Christ must be raised, which he was, as the first fruits is the guarantee. Then at his coming, when he decides to roll up history like a scroll and decides that everything has been accomplished and completed, then he will bodily resurrect all those who are in Christ. Now just for a moment here, I want you to notice this victory of the resurrection. Those who trust in Christ, because Christ has conquered the grave, are victorious over death because Jesus conquered the grave. Right? You see how I'm keeping Jesus conquering the grave central to this? Without that, we're hopeless. We will be made alive at the end of time because Jesus was raised from the dead. There is victory over the grave for Christians because Christ was victorious over the grave. So listen, if you're a child of God, this is remarkable news. Somebody who's trusted in Christ, that means this promise is for you. That the God of the universe... When you place your trust in Christ, gives you a promise of future eternal life. That's why Paul, as we're going to study later, would say in chapter 15, verses 54 through 57, when the perishable puts on the imperishable and the mortal puts on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying, death is swallowed up in what? Victory. Oh, death, where is your victory? Oh, death. Where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God who gives us victory. Notice the preposition through our Lord Jesus Christ. Without Jesus, there's no being raised from the dead. There's no through Jesus Christ. Jesus' victory over the grave, his victory in his resurrection guarantees that death has no hold on you. What remarkable news. That's why we'd say to you, if you're here and you're not a Christian, this hope is not yours. If you're not trusting in Christ as your Savior, this hope isn't yours. The only thing that you will get is eternal wrath, not eternal life. That's why we plead with you. Turn to Christ. Look to Christ. Trust Christ for your life now and your life to come. That's the victory of the resurrection that we see. Now let's go to the next point, though, which is the victory of Christ's reign. You're going to see this in verses 24 through 28. Now what's intriguing in verse 24 is that Paul makes a very clear transition. You can see it in the opening line, the opening phrase, then comes the end. That's very important because 
Paul is discussing, has been discussing, the victory of Jesus over the grave. And what he's doing is he's pointing back to a historical event that factually happened. And, but what he's also doing in verses 24 through 28 is he's showing us that the resurrection of Jesus has a cosmic, universal, and future impact. See, without Jesus being raised from the dead, he's not coming back and he's not raising his people and he has not ascended to the right hand of God the Father. So when Paul says that Jesus was raised from the dead and that Christ will come and he will raise his people, and then he says, then comes the end, he's showing us what's happening in this reign of the resurrected Christ at the right hand of God. And notice what he says, which is really fascinating. He says, then comes the end, when he delivers his kingdom to his father. And and I'm going to add to it, as a completed work, it's finished. This is the end of all things. So let's just think about this for a moment. What is this thing, this kingdom he's delivering over to his father? Well, the Bible tells us in Isaiah chapter 9 something really interesting, and we all read this at Christmas time, and we love to read it. And it talks about a child being born to us, which if we're on this side of history, we know that child is Jesus. And that this government or this kingdom will rest upon his shoulders. He will be the wonderful counsel, mighty God, everlasting father. And we're told the increase of that government or that kingdom, there will be no end. It will never end. And notice, notice the power behind it. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. So when you're reading that in Isaiah 9, and you kind of bookmark your place in 1 Corinthians 15... What you're seeing is the moment when the end of that government has finally been realized. And Christ is delivering it to his Father as a completed, finished work. Meaning, it's done everything that God and Jesus wanted it to get done. This kingdom is the same kingdom that Jesus talked about to the Pharisees. In Luke 17, when the Pharisee says, tell us about the kingdom of God. And Jesus says, well, the kingdom is right here in your midst. Imagine the shock on their faces. It's the same kingdom that's implied in Ephesians chapter 1 when Jesus, after being raised from the dead, is, is ascends to heaven and is seated at the right hand of God where he's overseeing and administrating his work of this kingdom. And he is over all things. See, that kingdom, that the kingdom of Christ that he inaugurated when he came to earth and he brought it at his coming is what Jesus hands over to the Father as a completed, finished, fulfilled work. Now, when you're back in chapter 15, you might wonder, okay, when's all this going to take place? Right? And I, and I know I can see you leaning in like, you know, all right, pastor, give us the time and the date. We're excited about that. Well, I'm not going to give you those things. I'm going to tell you what the text says. And notice what the text says in verses 24 through 26. Verse 24, it says that Jesus does this after destroying every rule and every authority and every power. In other words, 
after Christ has conquered everything, every evil, every earthly king, every wicked, unknown wicked power, all are conquered by the risen Christ. That's when he delivers this over to the Father. But notice verse 25, it says something fascinating. That Jesus must reign until it's all done. I don't know about you, but I don't, I don't like quitters. I don't like people that when the going gets tough, they go, I'm out. I love conquering kings who say, nothing's coming to my throne room to knock me off this throne. I am the king and I must reign until everything has been accomplished. In other words, Jesus' reign is so powerful and so victorious that he will make sure all of his enemies have been absolutely defeated. And then he goes on in verse 26 when he lists these enemies, and it includes death, which is the final last enemy to be defeated in the order of enemies to be defeated. So think about this. Evil kings, done. Wicked presidents, done. Rebellious empires, done. But his victory is not complete until... Every one of his people are all raised from the dead and death is finally and totally vanquished. Now listen, it doesn't take you a moment here to step back, walk out these doors for a moment, look around, and we see evil everywhere. I've had more talks with people this week about the fact that I think in America we get a bit myopic. We think that because things don't seem to be going well here with the gospel, they must not be going well everywhere else with the gospel. Think how arrogant that really is about us. Time does not allow me to tell you about the amazing advancement of the gospel around the world. Latin America currently is experiencing the first great reformation where people are coming out of the Catholic Church in the droves. 500 years later, they're hearing the gospel for the first time, and they're changing. Right? They're seeing the truth of the gospel. I could tell you stories about what's happening in Liberia, where people are miraculously hearing the truth of the gospel and turning to Christ. Stories of people baptizing people in the dark because they could not get outside because of restrictions. But because it's not happening in America, we think it's awfully bad. Things are terrible. The world's going to hell in a handbasket. Listen, we all know there's wicked leaders, there's evil empires, and there are unknown wicked leaders. We're living in crazy times. Talk to somebody who's lived through the 60s. Some of them say, actually, this is minor compared to that. I'm sure if we visited with somebody through World War II, they'd go, hey, bud, watch it. It's not so bad. That was bad. And what this text is telling us is this. Nothing, and I mean no one, will stop the reigning Christ from having final victory. No one. He And I love this phrase. He must do it. He must do it. And he surely will. Now in my studies this week, I found this quote by A.C. Thistleton that I found to be the best in describing this. He said, often the cumulative effect of evil or the corporate impact of evil generated by regimes, by anti-Christian cultures or by global social economic forces threatens the gospel or the church with powers beyond those of even an influential but wicked individual. Christ will annihilate such powers. 
Friends, this is your victorious king. This is your reigning king whom God has raised from the dead and seated at his right hand. He will bring all things in subjection and in submission to his great glory and his great name. He, he will complete his kingdom with his power and because of his promise. So let's just step back and realize what is happening around us. What's happening and what's been happening since the day Jesus was raised from the dead. It's a long time ago. Jesus has been working through his people who have put their trust in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection to take the good news of the gospel to every corner of this globe so that people might come underneath Jesus' victorious reign. And what God is doing and why he's doing this is found in our text, verse 28, that God might be all in all. Meaning this, Jesus' victorious reign will be so complete that the righteousness of God will cover the universe like the waters cover the sea. There will be no end to the presence of God, to the rule of God, to the holiness of God. God will be known as a center of all things. See, I want you to notice that this is a promise that your God has made to you because of the resurrection of the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead. God seated him at the place of authority and power in heaven, and he must reign until every enemy is defeated. Friends, listen, there is not one rogue molecule in the universe. There's not one rogue virus. There's not one rogue sinister ruler who will not one day bow their knee to King Jesus. You need to see this if you're living in a Genesis 3 world like all of us are. See, listen, we we can argue and have debates over when Jesus will return. Is it before the tribulation? Is it in the middle of the tribulation? Or we could even argue, as some might, about the dates of the great tribulation which would shock some of you to know, some actually the tribulation happened in the first century. And we go, heretics, actually they were some of the greatest theologians ever in the history of life. We can argue that all day long. But if you are a Christian and you don't believe in the final eternal victory of the reign of Christ, listen, you're aiming way too low. You're aiming way too low of your glorious king. Jesus' reign will end in victory. He must reign until that happens. And his victory over death is simply the starting block for his victory. Don't, Don't miss this. I mean, it's really kind of a big deal. Now, with that remarkable news in the backdrop, I mean, you look around and you go, this is just chaotic and weird and crazy. Where's this all going? I'll tell you where it's all going. Eventually, it's going to all land at the throne of Christ. And one day that king, when it's all said and done, said, it's all done. Here, hand it over. And we will be rejoicing in that moment. Really encouraging news. Then what are the ramifications of this for us right now? 
Let's look at the ramifications of Jesus' past resur- victory, the resurrection, and his future victory, his reign. We're going to see this in verses 30 through 34. Okay? Now let me say something before we jump into this about verse 29. I'm going to write on verse 29 more tomorrow. I do not have time to cover the 50 to 100 different interpretations of this text. There's a lot of it. But I want to tie it into, I think, what Paul's saying here. It seems to be the Corinthians had bought into a model where they were, they were ba- getting baptized for dead people, thinking that they could potentially baptize it was going to save somebody. This is kind of a Mormon idea as well that you see in our particular world. And what Paul is using verse 29 as, I think, is to say to them, listen, <clears throat> if you don't believe in the resurrection of the dead, why would you be doing this? It doesn't make any sense. It's like Paul in verses 12 through 19 using their arguments against them to basically say, if there's no resurrection, here's the problem, okay? The other reason I'm not going to spend a lot of time on verse 29 is I don't exactly know what it means. You ever heard a preacher say that? Right? Well, that's what this preacher is going to say because I've been taught long ago, if you don't know what it means, don't preach on it, okay? So we're going to skip to verse 30. I'll write on verse 29 tomorrow, okay? Because verse 30 is where the, we see the ramifications. You're going to see this, that Paul, in verses 30 through 32, keeps banging the same drum about the resurrection of the dead being real. He's actually tying everything he's been talking about in chapter 15. The reality of Christ's resurrection, the victory of his resurrection, the victory of his reign. And here's his conclusion. If Christ has not been raised from the dead... This world is all we have, and we better get everything out of it. You can see this in verse 32. There's no resurrection of the dead. Let's just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Sadly, many Christians live like this. Many so-called Christians like this live like this. But notice something Paul is doing in verses 30 through 34 that's really interesting. He is contrasting his view of life through the lens that there is a resurrection of the dead, and he's contrasting that with the Corinthian view of life who does, don't believe that there's a resurrection of the dead. So what he does, he makes these odd statements like, why are we in danger every hour? And he also says, I, I die daily. Which means in Paul's life and ministry, he died to his, desi- his own selfish desires daily. He probably faced death for the sake of Christ daily. And he also wrote, what do I gain, humanly speaking? I fought with beasts at Ephesus, which weren't literal beasts, but were enemies of the gospel in Ephesus. His point is this. If the dead are not raised, why do any of those things? Let's just eat, drink, for tomorrow we die. Living by faith, living courageously for Christ would be pointless if there's no resurrection of the dead. But, in fact, Christ has been raised. So what Paul's saying is, let's contrast your hopeless view with my hope-filled view. It's telling us something fascinating. Since Jesus has indeed been raised from the dead, living by faith, being willing to take courageous risk for the sake of Christ, being willing to put our lives on the line for the gospel is where true joy and true satisfaction in this life and the next will be found. See, this is the reality of these two victories. The victory in the resurrection, the victory of Christ's reign, that have a real practical life application for us right here. 
You'll notice Jesus' victory in the resurrection is something in the past. Jesus' future victory is in the future. What does that have to do with us right now in the present? Should we assume anything less than what the victorious Christ would do in victory? Romans 8 lays this out very clearly when Paul wrote that we are more than conquerors. And that nothing will ever separate us from the love of God found in Christ Jesus our Lord. There is a present victory that allows us to live by faith and live courageously because there was a past victory and there is a future victory. So friends, listen. In Christ, we have a past victory, a future victory that gives us a present victory. Meaning, we can face enemies of the gospel. We can die daily to our own selfish passions and live by faith for the glory of God and take courageous risk for the sake of the gospel in a world that is corrupted by sin and overrun with evil. Christ's victories have ramifications right now. Right now. That's why it is amazing to me to listen to Christians who have no hope in this world because of the angle of our politics or because of how a virus is taking over or because this is happening or some evil ruler is doing something. And I think to myself, do you not see the victory in the past, the victory in the future, and the victory in the present? So knowing this is true, knowing there's a present, that we are this, that we're living in light of these two wonderful victories that it applies to us now, what, what does Paul tell us that we should be doing? What does he tell us? He gives us a conclusion. You'll see this in verses 33 and 34. There's actually two of them. And the first one you'll see in verses 33 to the beginning of verse 34. Don't be deceived. Bad company corrupts good morals. Wake up from your drunken stupor and do not go on sinning. I'm going to summarize it this way. Do not be fooled and stop living in sin. Do not be fooled and stop living in sin. See, the reason the Corinthian Christians thought there was no resurrection of the dead was because of their culture around them. They bought into lies from the culture around them. In other words, bad company corrupts good beliefs and good morals. So these Christians who were at one time believing in the resurrection of the dead believing that Jesus died for their sin and rose again, had been influenced by bad friendships and the world around them. And in leaving the complete gospel behind, it led them to all the sins that Paul deals with in 1 Corinthians. You're you're aware this book is filled with sin. They were living in such immorality that even non-Christians were ashamed. They were massively divided. They fought. They compared themselves. They were jealous of one another. They put themselves underneath certain leaders and kind of held banners up like, we're better than you. And the onlooking world is watching this. See, when they left, the victory of Christ behind, their morals went with it. So listen, because Christ has victory over the grave, because he has victory in the future, we have power from the risen Christ to not be fooled by the lies of our world anymore. We have power that we can stop living in the sin that so easily besets us. 
Friends, the world is going to say to you, God is dead, Jesus isn't real, the supernatural is meaningless, man is the center of all things, loving yourself is the highest good. You all know the lies. But are we hearing those things through the reality of Jesus' victory over the grave and his victorious reign? Let me talk to those of your singles and young people for a minute. You live in a world unlike anything I, I could ever imagine. You, you are living in a world that is filled with information. It's the largest time of information in the history of the world. Social media, memes, I mean, you name it. I mean, news feeds, everywhere you look, there's stuff. Uh, <clears throat> we can watch TV from our phones. What? And you young people are going, man, you're old, right? Okay? And listen, all of that is talking to you. It's speaking to you. So are you listening and watching these things, hearing these things through the reality that Jesus was raised from the dead and is now seated as your victorious king who will one day bring all things up in submission to him? Are you listening to those things through that lens, through that that filter? Husbands and wives... Listen, the lies of your own mind and the lies of your friendships and the lies of this culture will harm you, they'll kill your marriage, and they will harm your family. The whole concept that we can live together, things will be fine, and then we'll work it out in the end later, there's no need for marriage, violates what God says about marriage and why marriage is important to reveal Jesus in the church. The whole idea of open marriages where we can actually date other people while we're married. Really? That we can dabble in some immorality and that'll be okay? Those are lies that will harm you. They'll kill your marriage. They'll take your soul and they're going to harm your families. So are you listening to these things through the reality of Jesus' victories? And listen, older people, and I, I want to talk to some of you who are retired, close to retirement, your kids are grown. There are lies in this world that are specific to you. You did your time. Your time's over, old man. You got nothing to offer. Younger people don't want your input. They want to hear from somebody closer to their own age. And I I would just ask you, are you listening to these lies through the realities of Jesus' resurrection and Jesus' victorious reign? How are you hearing these things? I've talked with some of you. I know what you say. You say, well, I've already done my time. You know, these people want to hear from other people. I just don't. That's not what the Bible says. When Titus 2 says older women teach younger women, it doesn't mean those that are 30, 40 that reach those that are 30 and those that are 20 reach those that are in their teens. It literally means older women, right? So if you've got the gray hair like me now, you're in the older category. How are you listening to these Lies, are you filtering them through the victories of the resurrection? See, what are the lies you're being influenced by right now that are leaving you hopeless? What are the sins that you need to repent of that are capturing your soul? See, because Christ has victory over the grave and will have victory in the future, we don't have to be fooled anymore. 
And we can stop living in sin like this. That leads us to the second application, which I think is an intriguing one, which if we're not being fooled and we're not sinning, you'll see where this is coming from. It's at the end of verse 33, where Paul is basically rebuking these Corinthian Christians because they've not represented Jesus well in their community and people don't even know about God. Now think about that. I would summarize this in a positive way to say it this way. We should represent Christ well now. These Christians had listened to the lies of their culture and had openly sinned. And the results were people around them had no idea who God was. I mean, can you imagine having relationships with people and at the end of it they go, Oh, I had no idea you are a Christian. They didn't even know you believed in God. Wow, and I don't believe in God. How come we never had this conversation? Imagine that. Imagine as well that your sin or your lack of representing Christ in a godly fashion is affecting people to make them think this isn't even real. I mean, let me ask you a question. Do you see your marriage, your singleness, being a kid in your parents' home, your social life, your relationships, your work, your pleasure, your money, your education, your love for sports? Do you see those things through the lens of Jesus' victories? And actually a part of of how God has providentially and sovereignly placed you in this world now to represent Him in every sphere of life. See, do you you see that? Does His kingdom matter so deeply to you that you care about how you represent your king? Right? The idea of a kingdom implies there's a king. See, because of Christ's victories, we, we understand the reality of the kingdom of Christ now. Even though it's not completed yet, and even though this world is filled with sin, the kingdom of Christ is at work now. The king is on call now for his people. And we as God's people get this unique privilege to be a part of this work right now. And he's given us this gospel, which is the power of God to to take to people that they might be be changed and transformed and be submitted to this king. It's the only power in the world that can transform the hearts of men and women and overrun kingdoms. So listen, let's let's represent Christ well now. I, I work with young men all the time. And I hear from young men often this comment. I'm going to wait until I get a job and I kind of get settled in, get married, and then I will represent Jesus. That implies is that Jesus will be the king later. In reality, young men, young ladies as well, listen very clearly. You are to represent Jesus now. 12 to you name the age, right? Once you become a Christian... It's time. You have a king now. I've heard people tell me, I'm going to wait till I get my the best job, the best pay, then I will finally represent Jesus. We'll be in a great neighborhood. And my response to that is, no, no, no. Your king is calling you to represent him now. 
I've heard people say, we're going to wait till our marriage is perfect, till we get in a big enough house we can finally house people, and our house is clean. It's all taken together. I might have a maid at that time to you know, make sure everything's clean. Then we'll invite people in. When everything's all put together, then we're going to represent Jesus. And I would say, well, Jesus isn't waiting on your house to get clean for you to represent him. Represent your king now. Listen, friends, I, I totally get it. We live in a, a wacky time. Genesis 3 is really clear. We live under the curse of this sin around us. Like you, I don't often feel like I'm more than a conqueror. I don't have a t-shirt that has that on. I don't have some juice to pump that into my body. And things look bleak at times. Things don't look like Christ is very victorious. Discouragement is real. Hardships eat at us. And turmoil of this world is massively confusing. That's why we have 1 Corinthians 15. Because our north star, our bearing, our compass direction is not based on how well the world is doing and who's in the Oval Office. Our bearing, our north star is what Christ has done and what he has promised that he will do. That's our bearing. So you can see why Jesus' victory over death And his future victory over all things frees us to live by faith and with courage. Let's pray. As we're going to prayer this morning, I just want you to take a moment before your king. If you know there are areas where you have not represented him well, then I want to just call you to repent. To confess that before the risen Christ, the ascended Christ, who already knows, and ask him to forgive you and empower you to change. If there are lies that you are believing because of the culture around you, I want to call you, I want to call you to the truth that Jesus has been raised and Jesus will have victory And he is your king. And I want to call you to look into scripture for what God has said. And if listen, if you're not a Christian, I want to call you to repent. To put your trust in Christ. By telling Christ, listen, Jesus, I believe in you. That you're the king. That you are the savior who's come for me. Please forgive me for my sin and change me. Father, we need the work that only you can do. Open our eyes to the truth that in fact Christ has been raised from the dead and in fact Christ will one day have full victory and in fact Christ has empowered us to be his representatives in this world now. And where you need to change us, change us. And we thank you, Father, We thank you that you are so perfectly wise and so perfectly caring that you not only gave gave us a job and a mission to represent you, but you saved us and you are empowering us to do it. Help us to represent you well so that our friends, our neighbors, our coworkers, 
would indeed know that there is a God in heaven. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. This sermon has been proudly given in response to cherishing the gospel of Jesus Christ. Be sure to check out our YouTube channel and subscribe to watch all our sermons online. For more information about Covenant Life Fellowship, visit us on the web at www.clfroseburg.com.